have outlines for the sermon series, so if you like one of those, grab one. Hopefully you got one on the way in. There's also a full transcript of the talk for those who need it or will find that helpful. Um, but as we reflect on this passage, uh, it is a new series which will take us all the way up to Easter. And so as we think about this, uh, we, we always need God's help. So let's turn to God in prayer. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we pray, Heavenly Father, that you will... Fill our minds with your truth, convict our hearts with your love, and also conform our wills that they might be conformed with your will. We pray that as we think about this passage tonight. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we all know that our life on earth is, in fact, very short. Very short, from cradle to grave. What's that? Might be 70 years, 80 years. For some of you, it might even be 100 years, but we know that it's short. But now I want you to imagine if a biography was written about your life, what would it be about? Where would the focus be on? Where would the emphasis be placed? Perhaps you've got an interesting upbringing. It might be about that. For me, it's my refugee story. Perhaps it might be about your successes and achievements. Uh, One of my friends, Eddie Wu, who he just got Australian of the Year, you know that maths geek, maths teacher? Well, he's a friend. We went to the same church for a couple of years. It might be that. Or it might be your adventures, your your wonderful adventures around the world. As a family, we're still thinking maybe one day we'll still try tenting. We're still attempting that, but not yet. Or perhaps your biography might be about your family or your contributions to work, to society, to church. Or perhaps it might be about your mountaintop experiences that you've enjoyed, or the deep valleys that you've experienced in life. Or it might be your rags to riches story. What would your biography be like? What would it focus on? What would you be remembered for? You see, what we want to be remembered for will actually show what we're living for. Or it should show what we're living for. But as we reflect on this, I suspect that none of us, as we think about our life, none of us will want to be remembered for how we will die. The last few days of our life on earth, the doubts we might experience, the anguish we might feel, the pain we suffer. But that is exactly what the Gospel writers want us to remember about Jesus. In fact, it's what God wants us to remember about Jesus. Because, you see, unlike normal biographies we might read, where we are all born in order to live. Abraham Lincoln, born, lived, became US president. Mother Teresa, born, lived, grew up to help the poor. Steve Jobs, born, lived, and founded Apple. But, you see, Jesus was born in order to die. Now, that is shocking. It should be shocking. Now, of course, he lived as well. He lived the perfect life. He showed great compassion and mercy to the poor, to the vulnerable. He showed great love and great power. But he was born in order to die. Of course, he came back to life again, but in order to die. And so as we embark on the final chapters of Matthew, this is what God wants us to remember. The focal point of the life of Jesus is his death. In fact, the focal point of all human history is the death of Jesus Christ. 
In fact, even more than that, the focal point of God's eternal purposes is the death of Jesus Christ. And you see, that is something, if we get wrong, if we misunderstand, we not only get Jesus wrong, we will get God wrong, we will get life wrong, and we will get ourselves wrong. You see, the death of Jesus stands at the very centre of God's purposes. And what we see in our passage today, it was divinely purposed. It was wickedly plotted. It was beautifully prepared for. And it was treacherously pursued. So let's have a look. Keep your Bibles open. We'll work our way through this passage. Firstly, what we see here was that it was divinely purposed. What that means is that the death of Jesus was no accident. And so we are never to think, wasn't the death of Jesus so unfortunate and so untimely that Jesus was this poor soul, unwilling, helpless victim of some vicious historical mistake? Just imagine if he lived to to 40 or to 50 or to 60, how many more lives would he have touched and impacted? Well, no. You see, the death of Jesus was divinely purposed to happen at exactly the divinely appointed time. Jesus was born in order to die. Now, that should be shocking. That should be confronting to hear. I mean, as a parent of three kids, I'm not thinking about the end of their life. They were born to live, and I want them to live. I want them to flourish And I want them to grow up to love their parents' stacks, especially the father. (laughs) But the death of Jesus was divinely purposed. Now, last week at a conference uh, some of us were at, at the Engage conference, uh, one of the delegates asked on on one of these nights when when they were still working hard, writing their studies, one of the delegates asked, why did Jesus die at that time? And why did Jesus die by crucifixion? Well, the simple answer is this. God divinely purposed it to happen exactly that way. But why not send Jesus in the 21st century when, when to die would be by execution would be far more humane by lethal injection? Why not now? Why back then? Well, you see, to die any other way would just not have the same impact of brutality, of pain, of disgust, of the shame of dying naked, hanging on the cross. Not only does the cross fulfill Old Testament prophecies, it shows to us how serious God takes human sin. But now, of course, we don't know exactly why God sent Jesus at that time, but we do know that it was divinely purposed. It was meant to be. And now when we come to this passage, that time has now arrived. It will happen in two days' time, during the Passover. So have a look, verse 2 with me. As you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man... Now that's a title Jesus prefers to use for himself. It's a title that comes from the book of Daniel, a title for a divine figure who is given all power and authority over the whole world. And so Jesus is saying, I'm that Son of Man. And verse 2, the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. You see, the death of Jesus was divinely purposed. No accident, nothing less. But though it was divinely purposed, it was also wickedly plotted. 
and plotted by this group of sinister people who should have been the moral backbone of society. It's, it's a scene a bit like out of the movies where all the sinister, conniving villains, you know, Joker and Darth Vader and Hannibal Lecter and, and Gollum and Scar and Gaston, you know, they hang out in this dark, dingy space, scheming and plotting to kill the hero. But only here, in the Bible, unlike the movies, this was at the palace of the high priests. They were all religious leaders. And unlike the movies, this did happen. Look at verse 4 and 5. And they plotted to arrest Jesus in some sly way. Now, in another translation, it's by stealth. And kill him. But not during the feast, they said, or there may be a riot among the people. And so just imagine that. It will be like you know, the Pope, the bishop, or the ministers plotting to kill someone innocent because it's expedient. And we do know historically that this high priest, Caiaphas, he was a, a genuinely sly, cunning fox. But the death of Jesus, it was divinely purposed by God, but it was also wickedly plotted by men. But this does not mean that God was at the mercy of wicked people and that somehow God, in his manipulative power, manipulated the situation into something good. Or, or nor was God just sitting around hoping that he could make a good thing out of a bad thing. No, not at all. But just like our first reading in Acts chapter 2, it was in God's set purpose and foreknowledge that God handed Jesus over to them. You see, what we need to see here is that God is completely sovereign, always sovereign, and still today remains sovereign even over each of our lives today. But God's sovereignty never absolves people of their guilt and wickedness. And so the people in this story, they were thoroughly wicked and evil, and they will be completely culpable before God. But at the very same time, God is thoroughly sovereign and in complete, utter control. Now, this should make us think, shouldn't it, if we understand this tension. God is sovereign. Humans are always responsible. It should make us think. As messy as this world is, as messy our lives are, as much suffering there is in this world, as evil and wicked people can get, God always remains sovereign and will always bring about his good purposes for his people. You see, there is no one who is powerful enough or wicked enough or evil enough who can frustrate God's plans. No one, even Satan, as powerful as he might be, he does not have the power. He is always God's creature, never God's equal. Martin Luther, we all know him, he described the devil this way. He calls the devil God's devil. The devil is God's devil. That is, the devil is like a, a dog on a leash, never able to operate outside of God's decrees. And so here in this passage, as wicked and wretched these people were in plotting the death of their Messiah, the Son of God, what were they in fact doing? Well, ironically, rather than frustrate God's plans, they were unwittingly bringing about God's divine purpose. You see, humanity's biggest efforts to thwart God's plans 
and it serves to bring about God's purposes. If you understand that, you have to marvel at the wonder and brilliance and the power of God. Divinely purposed by God, but wickedly plotted by men. And now in this story, come to this beautiful story where we see the death of Jesus beautifully prepared. Now they're in the home of Simon the leper, most likely one of the lepers Jesus healed earlier in his ministries. Otherwise, he will still be a leper on the streets. And then verse 7, something extraordinary. Have a look, verse 7. A woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. Now we know from the Gospel of John that this was Mary, the sister of Lazarus. This is the same Mary who sat at the feet of Jesus when her sister Martha was busy cooking. This is the same Mary who fell down and worshipped at Jesus' feet when her brother Lazarus died but was raised by Jesus. This is that Mary. She came and did this extraordinarily lavish, costly thing, pouring over Jesus this very expensive perfume. And we know from John's Gospel it was worth about a year's wage. I mean, that's a lot of money just to pour out in on the spot. Now, just to help us appreciate how much that might be, today in Australia, minimum wage is about $36,000. So just imagine that, $36,000. I'm sure many of you have that lying around. Pouring that all over Jesus and all gone in an instant. Now, of course, many of you who are already working full-time, you're earning way more than that, I'm sure. What is it today for a graduate? It's about 60000 If you're a dentist, what's that, 200000 If you're a doctor, several million. Just remember me, I'm a friend too. But imagine pouring over this person an annual wage and using it all up in an instant. Now imagine if you were there, what might your reaction be? What's this? Mary, just a silly woman, made a terrible, miscalculated mistake. She was meant to pour some cheap olive oil, but took out the wrong bottle. Or why not, Mary, just give Jesus a few drops and save the rest? Or why not be a bit more generous, just give Jesus the bottle and let him slowly use it over time? Or would your reaction be a bit more like the disciples? What a waste. Well, that's what they thought. In fact, more than that, they were even angry. Look at verse 8. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. I mean, they're thinking, I mean, we know Jesus is special, but he doesn't deserve all that perfume. I mean, he smells all right already. What a terrible waste this is. But of course, what's important was not what the disciples thought, which is probably what we would think. What's important here was what Jesus thought about it. And what did Jesus think about it? Was it a waste to have this uh, 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 bottle of perfume so expensive, wasted in that instant? What did Jesus think? Well, I don't think anyone would have expected Jesus to have said what he did. Look at verse 10. Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. I mean, that's extraordinary. Jesus saying, it was not wasteful at all, but beautiful. I mean, if I went over to your house 
and you were to do something so lavish for me just because you like me so much, pour a whole bottle of even a $100 cologne from Myers over me. I mean, I already feel uneasy. That's a hundred bucks. I don't deserve that. But somehow Jesus here was able to say she did the right thing. She did the beautiful thing. And then this next verse should shock us even more. Verse 11. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. Now this is not Jesus being uncompassionate or unconcerned for the poor. He was, he always was, cared for the weak, the vulnerable, fed them, protected them, provided for them, loved them, showed them mercy and compassion, and he wanted the disciples to do the same. But Jesus was here teaching them a very profound, important point, which they should have known, but they missed. You see, Jesus was teaching them that there is now a greater priority to feeding the poor, the Son of God. The Son of Man, the ruler of the universe, was sitting there in front of them, and they missed it. And so though it might sound outrageous, Jesus was saying to them, worshipping me, far more important than feeding the poor. And so she treated me as costly as that jar of perfume was. She treated me rightly, beautifully, lovingly, as I deserve. And so Jesus is saying there is now a kingdom priority that takes precedence. It was not a waste. But now Jesus explains what it all meant. There's a deeper meaning here. Now Mary may or may not have understood the greater significance of what she was doing. She certainly did out of love. But now Jesus tells us, verse 13, When she poured this perfume on my body, She did it to prepare me for burial. You see, the death of Jesus was still in focus. Divinely purposed, wickedly plotted, and now beautifully prepared. But what's interesting here is that normally you anoint a body with perfume after the person dies so that they don't smell so bad. But here it was done beforehand in preparation. Perhaps he was hinting to us at the type of unusual death Jesus will experience. But what's also interesting here is that the anointing over the head was something they did for kings. You see, in the Old Testament, Samuel anointed Saul and David on the head before they became king. And so perhaps here there's also an allusion to that. Anointed in preparation for his burial, but also anointed to become king. You see, that's the whole theme of this series. For Jesus to go to the cross also meant for him to claim his crown, to cross to crown. And so what Mary did here was precious, was beautiful, and it will be remembered. Verse 14, Jesus promises, I tell you the truth, Wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And as we read that today, isn't that being fulfilled? It's being fulfilled. 2,000 years later, this extravagant act is still being remembered. I mean, Mary did that act not knowing that this would be really the case, but she's still honoured by all Christians the world over. And so the death of Jesus, divinely purposed, wickedly plotted, 
and now beautifully prepared by this woman. Now we get one more scene. The chief priests wickedly plotted, but it was a friend of Jesus who treacherously pursued it. It was a close friend of Jesus who sold him out. Now as we read these final verses, we have to feel the weight, the horror of this horrendous betrayal. Verse 14 to 16. Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and asked, What are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? So they counted out for him thirty silver coins. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Now as you read that story, you have to notice the stark contrast. Mary just showed Jesus extravagant love and devotion. A year's wage poured out just like that. But he, Judas, betrays his friend for only 30 silver coins. Now back 1,500 years before that, at the time of Exodus, in the time of Moses, 30 silver coins was the price paid for a slave. Judas saw his friend Jesus just like a slave. As much as a slave, in fact, with inflation over 1,500 years, 30 silver coins wouldn't be worth as much as it did back then. In comparison to the woman, perhaps it was only worth about four months' wage. And so here we see the extravagant love, but yet this horrendous betrayal for a paltry amount of money. And so the death of Jesus, divinely purposed by God, no accident, wickedly plotted by men, they will still be culpable, beautifully prepared by this woman, and treacherously pursued by Judas. You see, the Gospel writers want us to remember that Jesus was born in order to die. But of course now we need to ask, why? Why all this focus on the death of a person? Why would God have this tragic event as the very centre of his eternal purposes? Well, we have to understand this story rightly. You see, when we read a story like this, it's very easy for us now, reading this, and sitting outside the story, sitting at a distance and assessing it. Well, the woman here, Mary, she did a nice job, good on her. The chief priests, evil. The Jewish leaders, evil. Judas, evil. You see, that's not how we're meant to read the gospel story. You see, the death of Jesus was not just the result of the wickedness of the chief priests. And it was not just the result of the treachery of Judas. It is the result of our wickedness too, when we fail to trust the God who made us. It is the result of our treachery too, when we love money and the stuff in this world more than the God who made us. It was not just their sins, but it is also our sins that sent Jesus to the cross. You see, as we read this story, we're in it too. We're just as guilty. We're in this story too. And that's why the death of Jesus was divinely purposed. That's why Jesus was born in order to die. It was a death out of love for the world. It was a death out of love for you and me. And so just as one wonderful theologian, John Stott, in his excellent book, Cross of Christ, he said this, Before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, 
we have to see it as something done by us. Where in this story too, it is our sins too that sent Jesus to the cross. And if we know that, if we understand that, if we believe that, that our sins sent Jesus to the cross, then what Mary did makes perfect sense. What Mary did makes perfect sense. Extravagant, loving devotion to Jesus who went to the cross for me, it is not a waste. It is never a waste. And so here we see not just the biography of Jesus. He will die, he will come back to life again. But also here we see the biography of the chief priest and Judas. They've gone down in history as infamous, wicked people. But of course here we also see the biography of Mary. What she did for Jesus was not wasted. What she did for Jesus was not forgotten. And so just like we began, as we think of our biography, isn't that how we want to go down too? For sure we'll all have our different achievements and adventures and families and contributions to the world, but isn't it far more important knowing that Jesus went to the cross for me, therefore I will love Jesus with extravagant, costly love and devotion. Even when the world around me says, you foolish Christian, what are you doing? Wasting your time, wasting your effort, wasting your money. Even when our families or our cultural pressure says, live for yourself. Make sure you have enough in your nest egg to be financially comfortable before you think about being generous. If we understand that Jesus went to the cross for me, then what Mary did makes perfect sense. I don't care. I'll be like Mary. I want to love Jesus with extravagant, costly, loving devotion. Isn't that how you want to go down to? In fact, that's how many Christians have gone down in the past. The early Christians, the first Christians in the book of Acts, what did they do? Well, they sold their fields, their houses, and they laid their money at the feet of the disciples. The world's thinking, what foolish people, what a waste. How are we to think? It should challenge us how we are to think. But isn't that act just showing costly, loving devotion to Jesus, just like Mary? Or in the 16th century, William Tyndale, he gave his life to translating the Bible into English. We went all around uh, England. And what did he get for it? He was imprisoned. And he was killed for it. But isn't that showing costly, loving devotion to Jesus, just like Mary? Or in the 20th century, Jim Elliot, a missionary to Ecuador, he was killed by the people who was trying to share the gospel too. But he said this. He said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain which he cannot lose. Doesn't that make sense? And he gave his life for Jesus. Isn't that showing costly, loving devotion to Jesus, just like Mary? Or some of you will be familiar with Campus Crusade for Christ, now called Crew, or in Australia, Power to Change. How is it possible that this group that tries to reach students on campuses now would have 25,000 missionaries in 191 countries. 
Well, it was founded by a guy by the name of Bill Bright. But how it worked was that he was generously supported by a man by the name of Art DeMoss, who bankrolled the ministry to the tune of millions. There's a picture of him that hangs at the crew headquarters in Orlando, and underneath his image, there's a plaque that says just that. His life was dedicated to Christ and his service. He gave away millions. Isn't that showing costly, loving devotion to Jesus, just like Mary? Well, the Bible college I went to is called Moore Theological College. Why is it called Moore College? Not because we have more stuff there, but it's named after Thomas More, a wealthy city man who left his entire state to the church. And that's how they were able to build that Bible college in 1856. What he did, isn't that showing costly, loving devotion to Jesus just like Mary? Or many of you may have heard of this guy, Ravi Zacharias. He heads a big ministry, international ministry, trying to reach skeptics with the truth of the gospel. How did it all begin? How can they become so influential today? Well, back in 1983, Ravi, he was a professor, head of a department, very comfortable life, but he was convicted. More people need to know about Jesus, more people need to defend the Christian faith. And so he prayed. And then after a conference that he spoke at, a man after the conference by the name of D.D. Davis came to him and gave him a check for $50,000. Now, Ravi said to him, I've never received a gift like this and I cannot accept it. I don't know you, you don't know me. But do me a favour. Tell me where you live and sometimes in the next two months I can come and see you and then we can talk about this. But then Mr Davis, he said to him, you're a busy man. Tell me where you live, I have a plane, I'll fly and see you. And so he flew from Youngstown, Ohio to White Plains in New York. And that day Mr Davis said to him, Ravi, I'm not an educated man. I've never been to college, but I know how to make money. If this is what God has laid on your heart, I'll take care of you. You do what needs to be done in reaching the skeptic, and I'll get behind you. That's how the ministry began. Now, after Mr. Davis died, it was discovered that through his accountant that he, in fact, gave away millions during his life. Wealthy, very wealthy. But do you know what his house was like? He lived in a tiny little bungalow in Youngstown. The driveway was not wide enough to have two cars. And he never locked his house because he thought if any, anybody wants it, and bad enough, they can just have it. Mr Davis could afford any mansion on earth. But Ravi said of this man who supported him so, for so many years, the first day Mr Davis ever had a mansion of his own, was the night he passed away. But that man, isn't that showing costly, loving devotion to Jesus, just like Mary? Now, they might be stories of our heroes, but here's one from just today. I spoke to a sister, and she was telling me she's selling her house. She's got another one they're, they're living in, but she's selling a house. And she said to me, we've got this extra money. We're selling a house. We want to do some fruitful kingdom work with it. If you know of any important ministries, please let me know. That was just today. I mean, isn't that showing? Costly, loving devotion to Jesus, just like Mary. 
And so what about the rest of us? We see what I want to be remembered for reveals what it is I should be living for. Will I betray my love for Jesus, like Judas, by loving this world more? I, mean, I can't give 10%, that's way too much. To ever think that Jesus deserves more than that. To ever think that it's wiser and better to hold back from Jesus. Or will I love Jesus so extravagantly, so lovingly, so costly, so beautifully, like Mary? Isn't that how I want my Lord to remember me too? In fact, isn't that how I want my Lord to welcome me home? Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, how can we ever, ever dream of repaying you for your wonderful grace in giving your Son that he would die for us willingly and joyfully? But we do pray that you'll always be convicting our hearts so that we might live lives where it is evident that we too, like Mary, might love Jesus so extravagantly, so costly, and so beautifully. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.